Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with how Speaker McCarthy is a prisoner of the madness that has captured the Republican Party as he embarks on a fruitless impeachment of President Biden and a shutdown of the U.S. government at the end of the month. Joining us to discuss how delusion and distraction now dominate our politics is David Farris, a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week and Newsweek. He is the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media, Blogging and Activism in Egypt, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and most recently, The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. We'll discuss his article at Newsweek, The New GOP Mainstream Starts a Pointless Biden Impeachment Probe. Then we'll examine the meeting between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin and what Kim might be getting in return for supplying Putin with munitions for what Kim calls Putin's, quote, great victory in a sacred struggle in Ukraine. Joining us is Stephen Norper, founder and president of Asia Dialogue and a senior UN program advisor. A former State Department senior analyst, he has held fellowships at the East-West Institute, East-West Center, Korea's Institute for Foreign Affairs and National Security, and the Edward R. Murrow Center for Public Diplomacy. Then finally, we will speak with Karen Dolan, the Project Director of the Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, whose work focuses on anti-poverty issues, local democracy and empowerment, and peace. She previously coordinated the Economic Hardship Reporting Project with the late New York Times bestselling author Barbara Ehrenreich, is author of The Poor Get Prison, The Alarming Spread of the Criminalization of Poverty, and has an article at the Institute for Policy Studies, Poverty Spiked Sharply in the U.S. in 2022, after having declined in 2021. We will discuss how child poverty in the U.S. has more than doubled in a year, from an historic low of 5.2%, to 12.4%. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, David Farris, a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week and Newsweek. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media, Blogging and Activism in Egypt, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and most recently, The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at Newsweek, The New GOP Mainstream Starts a Pointless Biden Impeachment Probe. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Farris. Thank you, man. It's great to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, David. And your article ends with, uh, just to quote, this is American politics right now, a party no one likes leading an investigation about something no one cares about, ignoring our many real and pressing problems in the process, all as a setup 
to a presidential election between two candidates no one wants to run in the first place. So depressing but true, I'm afraid. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, it's not great. (laughs) and, And we're just learning now that Trump himself called these clowns in the House to urge them to go ahead with this impeachment. And, of course, Coma has been running, what, a nine-month investigation? So far coming up with nothing. And the other one that McCarthy appointed to this impeachment inquiry is Jim Jordan. And, of course, his antics have become so tiresome, it's unbelievable. So I guess the question then would be, David, is this a reflection on America? I mean, these people are representatives of the American people. So have we become an idiocracy or a, a clown show? Well, I think it's a, it's a certain reflection of, um, of our moment in American politics, right? Um, where you have the two parties not just deeply polarized, um, but I think one of those two parties uh, has decided to ignore or transcend the various barriers uh, to authoritarian conduct, to abuse of power, um, and has sort of given up its commitment to the public good and to the public spirit. Um, I think it's notable that there's no meaningful policy platform coming out of the House Republicans right now. Um, as soon as they had won the House, even before they had won the House back in 2022, they more or less promised that the, that the game plan was going to be uh, a series of standoffs about the budget, which is, you know, within their rights if that's what they want to do, um, and then sort of endless investigations of Hunter Biden. And I think it's really telling um, that not even Speaker McCarthy can come up with a, a convincing rationale about why he's pressing forward with impeachment inquiries, other than it's a revenge quest on behalf of Donald Trump. It's um, it's a sideshow. It's uh, it's a way to keep investigations going um, in the hopes that they might turn up something damaging against the president. Um, but we've reached a point in our history where um, impeachment is just feels like another way to pursue partisan grudges. Um, and Republicans want us to believe that it's, um, you know, it's just as serious an inquiry as those into President Trump. And I, I simply don't think the facts are there to support that. So it's uh, it's a very depressing development. And the former Republican strategist, um, founder of The Bulwark, Charlie Sykes, on MSNBC last night or yesterday, in talking about this impeachment quest on the part of McCarthy, said that this is Stephen Bannon's strategy of flooding the zone with, I can't use the word, um, use the polite word, feces. So is this is this flooding the zone with feces? In other words, just throwing stuff there, confusing people. The last thing, of course, you want to talk about is anything serious. You just want to rile up the rubes. It's, I mean, I think it's part riling people up in, in the Republican base, but I think it's also part of a larger project that the Trump Republicans have been pursuing since day one, um, which is to create their own reality um, and to exert their power over the American people, to exert their power over other Republicans um, by convincing them to do things that are uh, objectively indefensible and then creating a kind of fictional narrative uh, that can be advanced in the right-wing media complex, which is a a closed loop. Um, You you advance that narrative in the right-wing media, um, and then you convince rank-and-file Republicans that something is wrong 
vis-a-vis Hunter Biden and Joe Biden without having any actual evidence to prove it, right? It's like you put a vibe out there. Uh, well, there's been corruption, right? Um, the president did something terribly wrong. And it's a way for rank-and-file Republicans to believe that without having to actually produce um, any kind of end-to-end narrative that they could explain to you convincingly. Like, I think if you just, if you pulled an average person off the street and you said, can you explain the Hunter Biden scandal to me? <laughs> they would have a really hard time getting from one plus one to two, um, because even the story that they're telling themselves doesn't make a lot of sense uh, in the context of a crime or an impeachment or a, or a high crime and a misdemeanor that the president of the United States has allegedly committed. Right? so it's a, it's a loose counter narrative that allows um, that allows ordinary people to load whatever assumptions and conspiracies and prejudices they might have um, into it. And it, it doesn't matter because it's not about creating something that makes sense. Um, it's about creating a vessel for, for people to put their grievances into and then to vote accordingly. Well, but it also serves the purpose to distract, does it not, from the real crime family, <laughs> the Trump right, and, right. And, and his uh, son-in-law uh, just got $2 billion from the Saudis for, for services rendered during the time he was in the White House. Uh, and then, of course, Mnuchin got a billion from them. So rather than talk about the, the Trump crime family, they've invented the Biden crime family. But still, David, I'm still trying to thrash about, trying to figure out how and why did so many Americans get beguiled by this tawdry criminal, this cheesy vulgarian, this ridiculous guy that everybody in New York for decades knew was a complete embarrassment. I mean, just the, you know, we just had the anniversary of twenty uh, second anniversary of nine eleven. On that day, when that building went down and 3,000 people were killed across the country, Trump goes on local TV in New York and boasts about, now that the Twin Towers have come down, my building on Wall Street is the tallest building left. I mean, that's who this guy is. How did his will to change reality, he loses an election, then he decides that he can't because his father terrorized him and said, son, you've got to be a winner, you can't be a loser. So he can't face defeat. So he then invents this idea that he won and that the other guy stole it. And it's now metastasized into a core belief amongst at least 70% of Republicans. And that's a big chunk of, of America. So that I get back to that question is, you know, it's about the twilight of American sanity. Sure. I mean, this is this is ultimately a question for historians to uh, to determine exactly what it was that allowed um, this uh, transparent con artist, this lifelong fraud with a with a personal history littered with um, tragedy and um, and violence and and taking advantage of people. How how he was able to extend his grip over uh, over one of our two major political parties and and the people who support it. Um, and I think you, you have to give Trump credit for being a, a, a talented con artist, right? Um, con artistry is, a, is a, a not easy. Um, and I think you also have to extend a lot of blame to the, to the right-wing media. Um, and to, to a certain extent, some of the mainstream media too, but the right-wing media 
is the is the set of entities that has helped Trump every step of the way, um, creating a counter narrative, um, coming up with reasons why his latest fiasco or his latest crime isn't what it seems to be, um, carrying water for him constantly, telling the Republican rank and file that he's a man who's who's persecuted. He was a great president who was who was brought down by the deep state. Right? Um, and in conjunction with one another, they have created um, a, a sort of a, a large, very colorful, fictional universe about the American government and its relationship to Donald Trump. That if you are not interested in poking around outside of that closed loop media complex, you could believe it. You know, um, if all of your friends believe it, if the journalists that you trust believe it, if the news outlets that you watched prior to Trump coming up, um, if they are advancing that narrative, then you don't really have any particular reason not to trust them. Right? And so this is also a story about misplaced trust in, in various media institutions and, and media entities that all made the sort of the self-interested, self-dealing choice um, to support his rise once it once it became inevitable in 2015, 2016. Um, and I think that they are, uh, I, I would place the lion's share of the responsibility on them. Um, of course, the, the voters themselves, the GOP primary voters, the, the Republican, uh, the Republican electorate, of course, bears a share of the blame here. Um, but I think the, I think that they've been hoodwinked by, um, by ideological entrepreneurs who are, who are using Donald Trump to achieve other long sought Republican goals, like undermining democracy, like, uh, shifting wealth dramatically upward, um, gutting the welfare state, overturning Roe v. Wade. There's a whole host of Republican constituencies that have gotten exactly what they wanted out of Donald Trump. Uh, and they've gotten exactly what they wanted out of his presidency and his post-presidency. And I think it's important to, to keep that in mind, too. Well, it wasn't. It's not just the right wing media, as you pointed out. Back in 2016, it was the head of CBS and Les Moonves that said Trump may not be good for America, but he's good for CBS, as as the mainstream media gave him something like $5 billion worth of free advertising. Absolutely. And it was the mainstream media um, that covered Hillary Clinton's email scandal to the exclusion of all other public policy issues in the run-up to the 2016 election, right? like, a, like a complete non-scandal about something that harmed no one um, became the centerpiece of the 2016 campaign, became the reason... That people uh, that people cited when they said, "Oh, I don't trust Hillary Clinton either." It's just both a couple of crooks. Um, they, that was the mainstream media. Right? That wasn't right wing media. Um, some of the ideas might have come out of right wing media, but it was the New York Times and it was CNN um, and it was ABC and it was the Washington Post that ran those front page stories about about the emails that gave Trump wall to wall coverage. And they've learned nothing, right? I mean, CNN did a town hall a town hall with Trump um, not that long ago. I think some of the executives. Are, are privately thrilled at the prospect of him running again because they think it'll be a ratings bonanza. Um, and that's just uh, a symptom of the upside-down incentives in, in, the, in the corporate media in this country. Right, and it's also an indictment of that dreadful guy, David Zasler, who's now taken over, what's it called, Discovery Time Warner or whatever, mm -hmm. the yep. latest innovation of, that owns CNN and in the process of stripping it bare. But in terms of this ridiculous theater that we're about to endure with the impeachment of Biden and the inquiry that Speaker McCarthy is now handed over to Comer and Jim Jordan, 
and we've seen the idiocy of the sofa of what both of those two clowns have generated. This means, and of course they're going to shut down the government probably at the end of this month, which will be incredibly damaging to the American people and even to Republican voters. So <laughs> they're not exactly the sharpest tools in the in the toolbox, these characters. But what bothers me, uh, David, is that this is a never-ending story, that Trump is like a contagion that you can't get rid of. You know, it's like, you know, he's, he's antibiotic proof. You know, he's, it's some super bug that you can't cure. There's no cure for it because if he runs, which he looks like he's already ahead, if he runs, and even if he runs from jail, and if he loses then it'll just be the same story, right? He didn't accept the last time he lost. There's no reason to assume that he'll accept the second time he lost. And it it won't go away. There won't be any resolution in 2024, even if Biden wins, right? I I think it's unlikely. I I mean, you you can see the ingredients um, for this situation to persist for at least a few more years um, until, uh, you know, the inevitability of time takes its toll on him. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. He's not likely to accept the election result. Um, he still has the Republican Party in his thrall. Um, he has the Republican primary voters in his thrall. Uh, they are convinced that all of the 91 charges across four jurisdictions are all, um, you know, all part of a hoax and a witch hunt. And so they're immovable by our previously existing understanding of how people process facts and, and update their opinions accordingly. And I would just note that, you know, privately, I think a lot of elected Republicans really do want him to be gone. Right. But they've they've kicked away so many opportunities to do it for themselves. You know, like, in other words, elected Republicans could truly have gotten Trump out of electoral politics by convicting him in the U.S. Senate, at least the second time after the insurrection. And he would have been barred from office. And maybe he'd still be hanging around as some sort of media gadfly, but he wouldn't be running for president. And so to a very real extent, um, this is a problem that the Republican Party has inflicted on itself and that we then consequently all have to deal with. Um, and we all have to try to prevent the reelection of this man who I, and I think it would be just a, a far reaching catastrophe if he were to win the election next year in ways that we can scarcely even imagine right now. Well, the amazing thing is uh, that the guy that's sort of setting this latest train wreck in motion, Speaker McCarthy, a few years back, when Paul Ryan was the minority leader, they were in conversation, and McCarthy said to Paul Ryan, I swear to God, Dana Rohrabach, as congressman, and he used to represent Orange County, I swear to God that Dana Rohrabach and Donald Trump are on Putin's payroll. And that may have been the most honest and accurate thing that McCarthy's ever said in his life. <laughs> but Paul Ryan then quickly said, oh, let's not talk about that. And that's the same guy that greenlit this ridiculous impeachment because he's trapped by the far-right Freedom Caucus who will fire him at any moment unless he does their bidding. So it's a kind of American tragedy in a way because you know somewhere in the very compromised soul of this former owner of a yogurt store in Bakersfield, California, that he knows what's true, and yet he's engaged in this 
tragedy. Yes. Oh, I think I think McCarthy knows exactly what the truth is, um, and he's just the latest in a long line of Republican elites to uh, to understand the threat that Donald Trump presents to American democracy, to understand that he's bad for the Republican Party, um, but to think that despite all of that, uh, that they themselves are so special and so wise that they could they can steward the Republican Party through the storm of Donald Trump and achieve a series of long-held Republican policy goals, which at every step of the way, they have prioritized stacking the Supreme Court, cutting taxes, um, pursuing the, the, the agenda of corporate America. They have prioritized all of these longstanding goals over the health of Republican of, of democratic uh, society in the United States. And McCarthy's just the latest one to do that, to go out in public and say things that he, he knows are not true. You can see the look on his face. Um, you can tell that he's in some way going through this internal struggle of like justifying his behavior, right? Like, well, if it's not me, you can see how it goes, right? Like, well, I'm, I'm Kevin McCarthy. I'm a relative moderate. That's what he thinks. Um, And if I, if I get removed from the speakership, well, it's just going to be somebody crazier, right? Mm. Then I'm turning it over to Marjorie Taylor Greene or something. Um, And so they can each tell themselves this personal story of heroism um, about how they prevented something worse happening by getting in bed with Donald Trump, right? But the, but the cumulative impact of all of those actions has been to tighten Trump's grip on the party and to tighten Trump's grip on American democracy and increase the threat to all of us. Um, and I think, like every other person before him, this will come to ruin for Kevin McCarthy, um, whether it's next month or whether it's next year. Uh, it will not end well for him. And for all of us, and I thank you for joining us, uh, David Ferris. Thanks so much for having me, and I'll, I'll look forward to next time. Absolutely. And again, I've been speaking with David Ferris, who's a professor of political science at Roosevelt University in Chicago and a regular contributor to The Week and Newsweek. He's the author of Dissent and Revolution in a Digital Age, Social Media, Blogging and Activism in Egypt, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, and most recently, The Kids Are All Left, How Young Voters Will Unite America. And he has an article at Newsweek, The New GOP Mainstream Starts a Pointless Biden Impeachment Probe. We take a brief station break. We're back examining the meeting between Kim Jong-un and Vladimir Putin and what Kim might be getting in return for supplying Putin with munitions for what Kim calls Putin's, quote, great victory in the sacred struggle in Ukraine. And now, a word from the president. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. Getting voted into the White House. Everything looking good to the people of the world. But the Martha family is my boss. The voters of the world keep supporting me, and I promise to take you very far. Other mothers better not upset me, or I'll send a million troops to die at war. To all you Republicans that help me win, I sincerely like to thank you. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Norper, who's the founder and president of Asia Dialogue and a senior UN program advisor, a former State Department senior analyst. He held fellowships at the East-West Institute, East-West Center, Korea's Institute for Foreign Affairs and National Security, and the Edward R. Murrow Center for Public Diplomacy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Norper. Thank you, Ian. Delighted to be back. Well, thanks for joining us. And what did you make of the meeting between Kim Jong-un and Putin, which, of course, preceded by a long 
train ride from North Korea to Vladivostok on the special train that Kim Jong-un has that is supposedly bulletproof. I don't know anybody took a pot shot at him. I don't think <laughs> I don't <laughs> think he'd last long if you'd tried. But in any case, that seemed to have got a lot of attention. But what did you make of the of uh, the this bromance between these two? Sure. No, and, and you're right. There's a history to the train going back to his grandfather and grandfather and, and actually concerns about uh, their security. Uh, but yeah, sure, the bromance is interesting uh, and it's attracted a tremendous amount of uh, attention, and uh, maybe disproportionately so. But it's, uh, is in essence, Vladimir Putin uh, very much looking for friends in this world, uh, isolated relative to the war in Ukraine and relative to the ensuing sanctions and international condemnation of that aggression. And Kim Jong-un feeling himself very isolated, having uh, come out of uh, three years of pandemic lockdown, uh, basically with a failing economy and uh, dealing with a tremendous amount of uh, challenges uh, relative to uh, the economic situation. So they both have needs and they have found one another. Uh, ostensibly, Putin would like munitions from North Korea and North Korea has a tremendous uh, backlog of those, uh, really going back to the Korean War days. So they have built 70 years worth of munitions and conventional arms is a concern that will complicate the war in Ukraine. It will make it last longer. Uh, the North Koreans uh, want missile technology. Uh, I think the Russians may be reticent to transfer that. Uh, however, there may be other offerings, such as a space launch. And this meeting uh, today was held at uh, Vosochny uh, Cosmodrome, uh, north of uh, Vladivostok uh, in the uh, Pacific uh, uh, Russian area. So uh, as a result, uh, they would like to see that. Uh, but I'd be careful there, too, because both have just had uh, setbacks in their space programs. Uh, but there's clearly an, an idea here that there's economic opportunity, security cooperation, and of course the big one is geopolitically that they can bind together and uh, come out against what they see as a U.S.-led uh, Western bloc. Well, in the uh, toast at their banquet, Kim Jong-un said that the Russian army and people will certainly win a great victory in the sacred struggle, referring to the war in Ukraine. And he went on to say, I firmly believe that the heroic Russian army and people will brilliantly inherit their victories and traditions and vigorously demonstrate their noble dignity and honor on the two fronts of military operations and building a powerful nation. Now, apart from that sounding like it was written by George Orwell, um, what are they talking about? I mean, do they believe their own propaganda, these guys? Uh, not entirely. Look, most of that propaganda is geared uh, in two directions. One is to the DPRK public. Uh, clearly, uh, Kim Jong-un is, is broadcasting to his own people that despite uh, economic concerns, despite isolation, uh, that they are a mighty nation aligned with a mighty nation. Uh, the second uh, audience is the Russian public, and Putin would very much like this out to show that they have some level of international support. Now, the truth behind it, and they know it, and we certainly do as well, is that they are very, both very isolated, and they're both very weak, uh, ultimately. Russia's economy uh, has declined significantly. Uh, its uh, talent pool in terms of young professionals has fled. Uh, the sanctions and, of course, the exit of a lot of Western business uh, has really hobbled 
uh, Russia. And so Putin has uh, really left the, the prospects for Russia's economy moribund. Uh, as a result, then he needs to try to look good. You know, we've had this summer where uh, you had Prokoshin and the uh, the armed resistance. Uh, you've had concern about uh, fracturing among Russia's elite over the war issue. And so Putin wants to look strong and he's able to broadcast this through Russian straight state television as saying, look, we do have friends in the international community. Ultimately, though, the bottom line is that there were only five countries, including Russia, that were supportive of Russia's effort in the United Nations General Assembly, meaning they did not vote to condemn Russia, uh, North Korea was one. And so Russia doesn't have many friends in this world right now. And I would be cautious to overstate the concerns about this. Uh, there are some very real concerns, but the fact of the matter is that both, uh, while allies uh, both are at strategically weak points and uh, neither offer much economic promise, though they do, in the course of that, present a security threat. And it's when things are bad that people can act out and that miscommunication or mishap happens. And that's very dangerous for the regional and global community. But what these two regimes have in common are that they're both mafia states. I mean, Russia is a mafia state headed by the godfather of the godfathers, the Siloviki and the oligarchs who he regulates and controls, and they're looting the country. And as you've mentioned, all the, all the smart people have gotten out. And the North Korean regime is a family dynasty of the just absolutely cruel and ruthless family that rules this sort of hermit kingdom. It's not even communism. I mean, it's more akin to emperor worship for, uh, in Japan prior to World War II that they've created. And, uh, of course, the treasure of the country is being spent on nuclear weapons while people starve. And apparently the Russians were offering food aid in exchange for munitions that they need in Ukraine. So they have that in common, don't they? They're, they're just two ruthless mafia regimes. Oh, you're absolutely right. Your description's fantastic, Ian, in the sense that uh, there are no two states that, that more directly... Uh, challenge or confront the international liberal order than uh, Russia and North Korea right now. Uh, you mentioned the human rights situation, and, and it's atrocious in both places. Uh, the lack of, of civil liberties and civil discourse in Russia, uh, clearly since 2012, when Putin was feeling under duress, as it looked like uh, there was an electoral mandate that might not be in his favor, he simply cracked down even further. And of course, over his long tenure, uh, civil liberties have dissipated. He's, uh, you know, jailed oligarchs in opposition. He's jailed democracy activists. Uh, he's been uh, most likely behind the assassination of the, the former deputy prime minister and others uh, who, who represented alternatives in the Russian system. And so Russia is left without prospects uh, for any democratic order. And uh, Alexei Navalny uh, and others really represent the, the face of, of Russia's suffering at the moment. Uh, and then you look at North Korea and you have this gulag uh, with 120, 130,000 North Koreans uh, in a situation that, that one doesn't expect in, in 2023 that harkens back to the Stalinist legacy. And that's important to mention because the historical revisionism here is tremendous. And there is, uh, in, in many ways, uh, in Russia uh, under Putin, uh, correctives being put in place from school books to the closing of uh, museums uh, that present uh, the facts about, about the Stalinist terror 
uh, most of which centered on 1937 to 1939. And you have in North Korea, as you say, a uh, Confucian dynasty, which is in many ways more important than any aspect of communism in North Korea, uh, that has closed down entirely civil liberties. And you need to throw in a third concern there, which is uh, China and, and clearly what has happened in Xinjiang in the Northwest in terms of the oppression of the Muslim population there, uh, of course, in Tibet. Uh, so this is not a good time for human rights in our world. And it does put them in very direct opposition with those with democratic values uh, who are binding together. We've just seen a Camp David meeting between the United States uh, and among uh, the, uh, Korea and Japan. Uh, we've seen cooperation among Australia India, the United States and Japan, uh, and others who are trying to work to push forward that uh, liberal order uh, in contrast to what you described. Well, Stephen Norper, needless to say, uh, Donald Trump had a love fest with Kim Jong-un and still waxes lyrical about the love letters that they exchanged. And for the life of me, I mean, obviously, Trump is a complete embarrassment and a, and a fool and an amateur and an incompetent of the worst order, and, and it's a great indictment to the American people that some that they elected a man to the highest office who was so manifestly unqualified. But nevertheless, just to talk about Kim Jong-un as a human being, this is a guy that killed his own half-brother with a weapon of mass destruction and murdered his uncle, and I believe he had his uncle blown apart by anti-aircraft fire. Or maybe there was another rival or somebody else. But this is the kind of activity, and this is what, what Trump admires in both Putin and Kim Jong-un. That he, call, he says they're really tough. Tough is hardly <laughs> an adequate description of well, that kind of depravity. Oh, and depravity it is. I mean, it's strongman uh, behavior in, in the worst uh, degree. And... Uh, you know, the human rights and, and the oppression of civil liberties really, really uh, are profound and, and are not reflective, right, of the greater trends of the era. But we have seen a rise in, in neo-authoritarianism globally, this rise of populist nationalism. Uh, and, of course, the, the great irony in the Russia case is that uh, it's done on the grounds of opposing fascism when itself uh, very much a fascist orientation. So to see Trump, uh, you know, emerge is what they're hoping. And so they're hoping for a victory by Trump in 2024. Uh, no doubt Putin is prolonging the war in Ukraine with the idea that Trump would be reelected, that there would be pushback uh, at his directive in the Congress uh, against further support for Ukraine and uh, that Putin would then get his way. And Kim Jong-un certainly looks at, at things like the Camp David meeting uh, between Biden and Japanese Prime Minister Kishida and South Korean President Yun and says, look, let me wait it out and uh, see if Donald Trump comes back in. And we continue that relationship despite the setbacks in uh, in Hanoi. Uh, you know, they had a meeting in Singapore that produced some things and, and it, it was the bromance of the moment. So uh, look, strange in, uh, bedfellows and uh, should be of concern to us. It's their aspirations too, not only in terms of being uh, strong men and uh, oppressing those within their society, uh, 
but also that what that presents in terms of a security threat, uh, in terms of missile development, in terms of nuclear development, in terms of rogue behavior, uh, and as I've mentioned, in terms of the escalation and potential for mishap. Uh, what if we were to have a, a nuclear accident relative to what we have in the DPRK uh, or in one of these missile tests? Uh, we just lost the third stage near the Philippines. Uh, that had happened in an earlier test. Uh, what happens if something falls on Japan? You know, these political leaders and democratic societies will have to respond with accountability, whereas there's no accountability in these authoritarian systems. And so that gives them a blanket uh, a privilege to oppress rights and to, uh, you know, step on civil liberties in the manner in which they've done. So, Stephen, I'm puzzled, though, about you mentioned uh, that Putin plans to drag the war out in Ukraine and is hoping Trump comes back uh, and pulls the plug on the war, on U.S. support for Ukraine and possibly pulls the U.S. out of NATO. I understand that part of it. What I don't understand is why does the Biden administration not see the writing on the wall? Why have they dribbled in aid to Ukraine saying you can't have this, you can't have that, and then months later deciding that they can have tanks, they can have certain missiles, and now they can have F-16s, but they won't get them till next spring. And meanwhile, they've given Russia months and months to prepare these formidable defenses, and the Ukrainians are having a hard time and losing a lot of their manpower, which they don't have compared to Russia, and Russia's about to mobilize again, starting in about a month, uh, up to 300,000 more recruits. So that part I don't understand. I don't understand why Biden and Jake Sullivan and, and Secretary of State Blinken, their hair is not on fire. And why, why haven't they helped the Ukrainians when they needed help? And now they're clearly, I don't know when they're going to lose, but they're not necessarily going to win. And Putin knows that, and he's prepared to wait them out. And, and look, a lot of that has to do with political fissures in Washington, a politicization that, that we probably haven't seen before. Uh, but a lot of European leaders, including those in the Baltics, uh, would stand with your assertion that there should be more, there should have been more that was done, and there should be more to help the Ukrainians. The specter of their meeting here uh, north of Vladivostok is that the DPRK could become much more involved by way of providing lethal munitions. Uh, one issue that has not been uh, directed uh, attention to in any of the reporting I've seen is the question of manpower. Uh, would the North Koreans uh, send contributions to forces? I, I think it's worth asking, especially since uh, Russia employed 55,000 plus North Koreans in logging and other industries across Russia uh, before there was a curtailment on some of that labor just a few years ago. Uh, and, you know, would that be a factor in, in the war? Um, and before just brushing it off, I, I would point to the fact that Cuba has just uh, cracked down on what it considers uh, human trafficking uh, of, of Cuban volunteers, both in Russia and uh, from Cuba. And so Havana, uh, despite their political relationship with Moscow, uh, has, uh, has ordered a cease and desist. And there was something in the neighborhood of 78,000 Cuban names on one of the lists that was uh, located uh, out of Russia of people interested in, in aiding and, and abetting. So if the Cuban government closes that down, I think that says that there's a prospect for the North Korean government to become involved on that front. Uh, you know, the big question being asked is, will, will Russia also provide um, missile technology? 
and then if they do assist with the launch, what does that mean? Are they putting a spy satellite up with which they've assisted? Uh, does that give intelligence to North Korea? This spy satellite that has failed now twice from North Korea this year seems to be very rudimentary, according to uh, South Korean armed forces and intelligence that have, have collected the, the debris. Uh, but could they make uh, gains in that? And, and does that present a, a concern to uh, South Korea and U.S. Uh, and other uh, forces in the region, perhaps? Uh, and so we need to look at it in terms of all of the variables. Um, and I would be a little cautious about grouping China in on this as well. I know most of our concern is that China, Russia, and North Korea represent some sort of uh, new bloc or, or, or unholy alliance, and we do need to be concerned about their cooperation. Uh, but I would think that some foreign policy advisors in China look askance at this because it draws in a lot of Western eyes. Uh, and I think they wonder about the carrying costs. Uh, and there are tremendous costs to what Russia and the DPRK are doing. So that's a, a way around of saying that there's a potential here for a level of uh, uh, misbehavior that can really complicate the international situation. A at the same time, I still contend that they're both at a strategically a disadvantage point, and we need to be cautious in our response. Uh, but yes, supporting Ukraine, uh, upping the ante there in terms of, of Western resolve uh, seems to be of singular importance. And uh, clearly, that's that's what Ukraine is saying. What we don't need are North Korean munitions on the battlefield or North Korean drones uh, entering the conflict, even if they don't perform well, if they perform at all, uh, that's a threat to the Ukrainian people. So this is becoming... Uh, a situation where it has the potential for more global morass, and that should concern us as well, because a state-to-state -state conflict taking on regional dynamics and then now global dynamics uh, is one that we should be very, very concerned about. Well, Stephen Norper, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Truly my pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Norper, who's founder and president of Asia Dialogue and a senior UN program advisor, a former State Department senior analyst. He held fellowships in the East-West Institute, the East-West Center, Korea's Institute for Foreign Affairs and National Security, and the Edward R. Murrow Center for Public Diplomacy. We can take a brief station break and back looking into how child poverty in the United States has doubled in a year from an historic low of 5.2% to 12.4%. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Karen Dolan, the Project Director of the Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, whose work focuses on anti-poverty issues, local democracy and empowerment, and peace. She previously coordinated the Economic Hardship Reporting Project with the late New York Times bestselling author Barbara Ehrenreich, and is the author of The Poor Get Prison, The Alarming Spread of the Criminalization of Poverty, and she has an article at the Institute for Policy Studies, Poverty Spiked Sharply in the U.S. in 2022 After Having Declined in 2021. Welcome to Background Briefing, Karen Dolan. Thank you, Ian. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, the most alarming aspect of the new census data 
is that just a year ago, child poverty was at an historic low of 5.2%, but these latest figures put it now at 12.4%. So what happened? What happened is that lawmakers allowed the uh, pandemic supports that we've needed for decades and that were proven to work, lawmakers allowed those to expire. And that's largely the child's tax credit? Yes, the child tax credit was really, we, we still have a child tax credit, but this was an expanded child tax credit that was passed under the American Rescue Plan during COVID. And it not only increased uh, the payment to families and made the family made the payments monthly so that families could depend upon that, but it also most importantly created what we call full refundability so that the very poorest families, the very poorest children would be able to receive the tax credit, whereas previously and currently they're unable to. So there's about 19 million children that are left out of the child tax credit, and they are the children that are the most in need of the tax credit. So wealthier families still get it, but the poorest families don't. This was corrected during the pandemic under the American Rescue Plan, and that's why we saw child poverty was decreased by almost half. Uh, because the child tax credit was made fully refundable. And that uh, very important program was allowed to expire. And we saw in the very first month after that expansion had, had expired, nearly 4 million children immediately thrust into poverty. So there is a distinction clearly between the measures that you talked about that dealt with children from low-income families as opposed to the child tax credit itself, which still exists, right? But it's been described as a kind of upside-down policy where the more money a family makes, the more the tax credit you get. And poor families don't make that much money, so therefore they don't get much of a tax credit. So the special provisions that came about as a result of the American Rescue Plan, they were killed, were they not, by Joe Manchin. That's right. If there were, well, well, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema joined the entire Republican Party uh, of lawmakers, the, the entire Republican caucus in the House and the Senate, to ensure that the programs that had worked, including critically the expanded child tax credit, were not renewed. That's right. And so that is directly responsible for the uh, shameful spike, historic spike in both poverty for all ages and also for children in poverty. And and do we have any idea about the actual numbers of children that are casualties of the kind of Marie Antoinette attitude of Senator Sinema, who is very friendly to big corporate donors who lavish her with campaign monies. And Joe Manchin, uh, of course, his daughter ran a pharmaceutical company that made EpiPens, you know, that save people's lives if they're from bee stings and other responses. The EpiPens used to be 
$30 each, and she jacked the price up to $600. And, of course, EMS services and others need EpiPens because they're a common life-saving device. So these people are despicable, frankly. 2.9 million children were lifted out of poverty, and now they've gone back into the abyss, right? Yes. So with the ending of the income supports, uh, including the expanded child tax credit uh, in in 2022 by ending these programs and, and willfully deciding not to extend them, an additional... 5.15 5.15 million children over the previous year were uh, were thrust into poverty, and in, and the overall poverty rate for all age groups also increased, and and it added overall over 15 million people to poverty. So these are enormous numbers. It didn't have to happen. It happened merely because of the choice of corporate lawmakers, the entire Republican caucus, but also uh, at the time, Christian Sinema was a Democrat and Joe Manchin still is. Uh, and both of their votes were needed for the Build Back Better plan to pass. And the Build Back Better plan would not only have kept in place the expanded tax credit, child tax credit, which was so critical to keeping children out of poverty, but it included all kinds of things, including green infrastructure and uh, free universal pre-K and help for child care so that people could go back to work and um, help with the nutritional with nutrition programs, with rental assistance to keep people in their homes. So everything that we know that works um, and that had worked under ARPA in 2021 that brought about historic decreases in poverty, both overall and child poverty, those were willfully allowed to end. This was a political choice. So you can't um, take any truth when lawmakers try to spin that poverty is the result of people not pulling themselves up by their own bootstraps or because people are lazy. That is categorically untrue, and it is proven in stark relief under these current poverty numbers that show both how poverty was drastically reduced by smart policy in 2021 and drastically increased by not continuing that smart policy in 2022. And we've got worse numbers coming for 2023. Well, I imagine so, because of the Supreme Court and the Republicans banning abortion, right? Uh, poor families, mothers, often single mothers, if they're forced to have more children, they can't even feed the kids that they have, right? Yes, yeah, so you you have a, a, a looming crisis that's actually already underway with regard to maternal health and to the children uh, that are born without any supports, even though these are state-forced births. But additionally, the poverty, the census data that was released yesterday showed a decrease in the uninsurance rate in the United States. And that's, uh, that is misleading in this sense. The reason that there was a decrease in 2022 and 2021 is because also part of the ARPA, the American Rescue Plan, 
that passed these good income supports during the pandemic, Medicaid was was operating under what they call continuous coverage. So they were not allowed to keep people off of Medicaid for not filling out the right paperwork or not jumping through the bureaucratic hoops. Well, that changed last spring. And so though that uh, so now people are losing Medicare at rapid and shocking rates, and that's not reflected in the 2022 numbers. So that will come up um, in the 2023 numbers. And and the same with things like evictions and rental uh, assistance. So the longer that the lack of supports goes on, the deeper people fall into poverty. And it's really unforgivable because we know what works. We did it. It worked. And then a few lawmakers decided it was more important to uh, pander to corporations, to corporate donors, to pharmaceutical companies, as you mentioned, uh, rather than to invest in the American people and in small businesses. Completely a political choice. But what explains that, apart from the fact that these are despicable people who are, are just whores and hirelings for corporate money and billionaire donors, etc.? And, and in the case of Manchin and his daughter, uh, just greedy. I mean, what is wrong with the rest of the Democratic Party and why not fight harder? I mean, is it because poor people don't vote? I, I just don't understand why this is not a national priority and because it is a, a national disgrace. Well, it needs to be a national priority. And it was, as you have mentioned two Democratic lawmakers who stopped the process. Those two votes were needed for Build Back Better to be passed because there was such a uh, thin line in the Senate. It had passed the House, but it didn't get past the Senate, or it wouldn't have had the, had the votes in the Senate, um, had the robust uh, uh, program been uh, enacted or, or made it through the House process. So now we don't even have a democratically controlled House. So all of that is off the table. And when there was a chance with, as you say, Democratic lawmakers who by and large have proven themselves to be more receptive to social movements and to the needs of families um, than the Republican Party, although that's not a hard and fast rule by any means, but history has shown that to be the case more often than not um, because of two Democratic lawmakers that wasn't able to happen. Despite the fact that the, the Build Back Better program was overwhelmingly popular by voters of all stripes, Democrat, Republican, Independent, uh, it doesn't matter because in the end, the lawmakers who are bought and sold by corporations and pharmaceutical companies stayed true to the people who were rewarding them handsomely. Uh, the rest of us be damned. So until we can, um, as voters, make our voices heard at the ballot box, writing in, calling in to our lawmakers every day, joining social movements, joining things like the Poor People's Campaign, uh, making our voices heard as loudly as possible, making sure that voter suppression laws don't take effect. 
we have got to use this democratic process or we're going to lose it. And we should remember that our voices are stronger. Our voices must be louder. We don't have the resources that corporations and billionaires have, but we do have the numbers and we can't give up. Uh, our, our, the, the values are there from, from the vast majority of the American people. We all, most of us, want investments in families and in small businesses and not in corporations, billionaires, and pharmaceutical companies. So we have got to stay on that path. And we do have an election coming up and people have got to vote their hearts and minds and and uh, speak up, be heard. Don't leave your Congress people and senators alone for even a day. Um, that our voice is our, our voices and our votes are our strongest weapons uh, in this struggle for equity and democracy in this country. And of course, the young people, the children in this country, are, are the innocent victims of this indifference. That's the part that's so cruel and hard to understand, the most vulnerable. And so many politicians talk about our future, and you've got all these cheerleaders for Silicon Valley about, you know, like Musk and and Zuckerberg and the idea of the new metaverse and all this stuff. But you can't have all of this techno-utopian nonsense unless you've got kids that have had breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? Where are the priorities That's here? Right. That's right. And I think you really hit the nail on the head when you when you talked about it being very cruel. These are not just, you know, craven policies. They're very cruel. They hurt the most vulnerable among us, and that's children. Children who don't have a vote, who don't have a say, who can't call um, their congressperson every day. Uh, that's up to us. So, and not only does that temporarily hurt a child, we know from hard data that a child who is affected by poverty carries that trauma with them throughout their life. They uh, overwhelmingly have more health problems. They suffer from trauma that manifests itself in many different ways throughout life. They have lower educational outcomes or educational opportunities. They make less money over a lifetime. They have less uh, good-paying jobs available to them. So the cruelness is also compounded by the sheer stupidity of this. We are not taking care of our population. The children, poor children of today, are our, you know, our workforce, our citizenry, our innovation, our leadership of tomorrow. And by not investing in them, we are certainly not investing in anything in this country except for the very wealthiest. And you can't have a country or a democratic country, a healthy country, or a country that does well if you don't invest in its children. Well, Karen Dolan, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you so much, Ian. It was my pleasure. 
And again, I've been speaking with Karen Dolan, who's the project director of the Poverty and Race Project at the Institute for Policy Studies, whose work focuses on anti-poverty issues, local democracy and empowerment and peace. She previously coordinated the Economic Hardship Reporting Project with the late New York Times bestselling author Barbara Ehrenreich and is the author of The Poor Get Prison, The Alarming Spread of the Criminalization of Poverty. And she has an article at the Institute for Policy Studies, Poverty spiked sharply in the U.S. in 2022 after having declined in 2021. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green. To help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by